studying the book of Romans together. And uh, if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just flag one of the guys coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and they'll put one in your hand. It's Mark 2, our passage we're studying this, eve- this morning for your convenience. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. We want everyone to have a Bible and everyone to know their Bible. Romans chapter 11, we pick things up in verse 11. Paul writes, by the Holy Spirit, I say then, have they, speaking of the Jewish people, stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentile, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will be their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, speaking of Gentile Christians, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. For, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches are broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. And therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity, but toward you, goodness. For if you uh, continue in his goodness, otherwise... Uh, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. And if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you become wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the callings of God, calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God and have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now become been disobedient that through the mercy shown you they may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy uh, on all. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you 
for the blessing of being able to turn to it this morning. And we ask that you would speak to our hearts and fashion our relationship with you, our understanding of the world around us, Lord. Fashion us into the image of Christ as we study it this morning. And we pray and ask for this work of your Holy Spirit in each of our lives, conducted by your Spirit and through your Word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that Romans chapters uh, 9 through 11 were written by Paul principally with the Jews in mind who were uh, constituted a portion of a church congregation like this one in the city of Rome. And it was a congregation that was made up of both Jews that had become Christians and also Gentiles who had become Christians. And Paul himself, being Jewish and being deeply uh, Jewish, he understood that there would be questions that would have arisen in the minds of the Jewish listeners to the first eight chapters of the book of Romans as they were read there in the congregation. And he knew the questions that would arise even before they would ask them. And so what he does now in chapters 9 through 11 is he anticipates the questions that they would have. He poses them on their behalf, and then he proceeds to answer those questions uh, to them. Questions like, does the fact that we are God's chosen people not apply to us anymore? Or what advantage, advantage is there to being a Jew if God has now chosen to save Jews and Gentiles in exactly the same way? Or why is it there are so few Jewish Christians in comparison to Gentile Christians, and does it represent a failure on the part of God in some way concerning His promises to the Jewish people? The answering of these questions we've addressed in recent weeks while we've uh, studied these chapters. And this morning we come uh, to uh, a, the great question that the Apostle Paul addresses in the verses that we're looking at here this morning. When he looks, he declares in verse 11, he says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? And the idea is, have they more than stumbled? Have they stumbled to the point of falling, falling for good? Have they, as a result of their general rejection of Jesus Christ and the salvation that is found in Him, are they now beyond the point of recovery? In other words, is God through with the Jewish people as a unique people among all of the peoples of the world? And then the great question that would be in a Jewish mind, and would be in our minds as well as students of the Bible, and that is, if God is through with the Jewish people, then what about all of the promises that He gave to them in the Old Testament that remain un? Uh, fulfilled? And, and uh, is God going to keep those promises, or is He uh, going to disregard those promises? And as we began to see last time in, in studying verses 1 through 10, Paul made clear that God has not cast away the Jewish people as a whole. 
There is a believing remnant of Jewish people who believe in Jesus as their Messiah and as their uh, Savior. Uh, that group existed at the time of Paul. It was a significant number of people in those at that time, and they exist to uh, uh, presently. There's a believing remnant among the Jews in the world today. But in verses 11 to 32, Paul informs us that there's an even greater spiritual fullness uh, in the future of the Jews as well beyond God's work in the remnant. And again, Paul's question uh, in verse 11, have the Jews, and the idea is have they stumbled, have they fallen irreparably, have they permanently fallen in the eyes of God in terms of God keeping His promises and His plans for them? And Paul's short answer is there in verse 11, certainly not. And then he begins to elaborate on that certainly not exclamation point in uh, verses 11 through 12. He admits and declares that they have fallen. And the idea is that they've sinned and that they have transgressed against God. In other words, they have uh, transgressed against God in their rejection of his offer of salvation uh, through his uh, Son. But in verse 11, God declared, Paul declares that God is using this season of their rebellion and this season of their sin to now extend salvation beyond the Jews uh, to the Gentiles. And, and that in part, God has done all of this in extending salvation to the Gentiles in the way that he has in part to provoke the Jews to jealousy. And he speaks of that at the end of verse 11, and he speaks of it again in verse 14. And the idea is that Paul is saying is, why would God use the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy if he were through with the Jews? He wouldn't bother provoking them uh, to anything, but he provokes them to jealousy precisely because he still has a plan uh, for them. Now, how are we uh, to uh, provoke the Jews to jealousy as uh, Gentile believers? A Gentile is simply a non-Jew, and I would guess that the overwhelming majority of us are non-Jewish here today. And so we are Gentiles, and he speaks plainly to us here in the passage. You notice in verse uh, 13, the first uh, several words, for I speak to you as Gentiles. And so how in the world do we provoke the Jews to uh, a jealousy? And I remember on one of the trips that, that to Israel that we've taken, uh, church groups that have gone through the years, I think it's been 14 now or something uh, like that, and uh, some of you might even remember if you were on this particular trip. We came into the city of, of Jerusalem, and we checked into the hotel, and greeting us as we came into the hotel was a very prominent <clears throat> a Jewish Christian man, very prominent in the travel industry in Israel, and he was there to greet us, and he welcomed us to Jerusalem, a wonderful act of uh, hospitality. And then he asked if there were any questions that anyone might have to ask of him. And one of the group uh, proceeded to ask the, the question <clears throat> of him, what is the best way uh, to reach the Jews? 
and in, in, uh, in, in Jerusalem? What's the best way to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I don't know how many Jewish friends and, and family members you may have, <clears throat> but not every person is uh, able to have access to a Jewish person on a regular basis or someone who opens up an invitation to ask any kind of a question, much less a, sm- a far smaller a minority among the Jews, and that is someone who is both Jewish and the Christian. So this was a safe place to ask that question, and so she posed the question uh, to him. I'll never forget his answer. He said, the best way to reach them is by provoking them to jealousy. And he essentially quoted Paul here in Romans chapter uh, 11. And by that he meant, uh, very simply, Just go out into the city of Jerusalem and in the surrounding area and just be who and what you are as a Christian. And just let them see your joy, let them see your peace, let them see your spiritual satisfaction, let them see your holiness, let them watch you worship God, let them see your love for the Bible. Let them see you engaged in a grace-based relationship uh, with God. Again, the satisfaction that is yours spiritually, enjoying the reality of God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit operating in your life and through your life. Just be a New Testament Christian here in this city in order that that might be the greatest advertising for Christianity and that it might provoke them to jealousy. That is, that it might produce a longing in their lives to experience the very same realities and the very same things. I've had uh, the privilege of as I mentioned, leading several groups uh, from this church to Israel over the years. And each time, uh, it is fascinating to watch Christians uh, gather there from all around the world. They come from Europe. They come from North America. They come from South America. They come from Russia. They come from Africa. uh, They come from everywhere around the world. And to go there is to have a little bit of a foretaste of heaven. You've got Christians from every tribe, every kindred, every nation, every tongue there. Uh, The languages that are being spoken, the worship that's being offered up to the Lord. It's one of the great things about uh, traveling there in uh, in that way. And uh, to just watch them as they've come from all around the world, and there they are, they're worshiping the Lord there at all the various sites that they go to. They're studying the Bible and what it has to say about the site that they're located in. And then uh, as you see them gathered in these great uh, kind of rooms that constitute where people are fed in these hotels, and they eat breakfast in this tremendous anticipation of what the day is going to hold. They come back to the hotel at the end of the day, and now they eat their evening meal, reflecting upon uh, the wonders uh, of of the day. And every trip uh, to Israel, uh, and I think every group that has been there can testify to it, there are those sites and there are those situations where we go. And some, somehow the Holy Spirit, just in His sovereignty, just shows up in such a powerful, powerful way. 
And that He's always present. He's always working. It's always wonderful. But some particular place, some worship service, some uh, speaking of the Word of God, He arrives in a way that gives you simply a foretaste uh, of, of heaven. And He just manifests Himself in, in such power and in, in, in such a reality of His presence. And to such, to such a degree, no one can deny that whatever is happening here in this place right now, that the Holy Spirit is pleased with it, and He has come now to add His witness and His amen to what is, is happening here. And when that happens, I always pray that that very kind of thing will have an effect upon our Jewish guides and upon all other Jewish people that are a part of the trip or are, are, are within earshot or eyeshot of what it is that's going on. I mean, if you are an unsaved Jew uh, in Israel, you watch literally hundreds of thousands of Christians from around the world come into your land every year. And again, you watch them in all of their diversity, all of the different nations. You see male, you see female, you see, uh, you see every educational level, you see every socioeconomic level. They come from poor countries, they come from rich countries, but they come in, they pour in year after year into the nation. And when you stop and you look at the sheer numbers of these people and the diversity of them from every part of the world, you have to stop and either conclude that all of these Christians are either crazy to a person or they are tapped into a reality that we are not tapped into. And maybe they understand something that we don't understand as well as we think. And I could talk this morning, in the entire morning, about different sites where God has just profoundly manifested Himself at, at a, a, a site uh, as we just simply would go about our business through touring the land and worshiping the Lord and studying His Word. I do remember, I'll never forget it, several years ago, some of you might have been on the trip and you remember it, we always begin a trip like that by going to the city of Caesarea, the ancient city, Roman city. Uh, and there, at, at Caesarea, there's this great theater that's been reclaimed from the sands of the Mediterranean Sea. And in its glory, it sat literally tens of thousands of people. And so you go in, there's all kinds of room for many groups of Christians to gather in different areas, still have the privacy that, that we need to do what we're doing in the larger context. And I remember one time a woman got up, I forget whether she was from Africa or whether she was from Asia, and she got up and she went to the stage area of that great theater, and she began to sing. And she began to sing, it was a hymn, I think it was, How Great Thou Art, beautiful, beautiful voice. And when somebody does that and they're a hot dog, you just can't wait for it to get over. It's just like, when are they going to pull out their phone and take a selfie? Uh, but there was none of that. Here was a woman from I don't know where 
But the same Holy Spirit indwells her, is indwells me, and she begins to worship the Lord. And the Spirit of God came down so heavily upon all of us in that theater, all of the groups went silent, and we just simply partook of what God had clearly called her to do. And these kind of things going on all of the time, and when you see them, and when you see them far away from home, it makes you so glad to be a Christian, and so glad to be a part of this thing called the body of Christ. And I know that there have been times where we have even, for us as a group, as one of the worship leaders has led us in worship, and here we are at a site, and the Lord shows up in a special way. And others in, within earshot, they begin to listen to the worship, maybe not even know the words, and it gets done, and then they will applaud, not to applaud us, but to applaud something God was doing within, within their lives. And so, no persecution, certainly no anti-Semitism for sure toward the Jewish people. And unfortunately, church history is absolutely full of of this kind of thing, but to just simply for us as Christians to provoke to jealousy by walking in the fullness of the Christian life that is described in the Word of God with the longing and the desire that it will provoke a jealousy within a Jewish uh, person and, and, and a longing for what we have and is found only in Jesus whether a person is Jew or Gentile. Now, Paul does something very valuable for us in this section of Romans in that he briefs us uh, as Gentile Christians upon the future of the Jews. And, and uh, he speaks to us of it in verse 12, again in verse 15, and then in verses 25 through uh, 27. So Paul declares, is God through with the Jews? Absolutely not. Certainly not. He's going to fulfill every promise that he has made in the law and the prophets to the Jewish people. And so, how is that going to happen? When is that going to happen? And Paul answers that in these verses. In verse 12, Paul tells us that there's a, a, a future fullness that is going to come to the Jewish people. And you see that word fullness in the verse. A future fullness is, that it is going to come to them, spiritually speaking. And that fullness, or spiritual completeness, as we look at it in the light of the rest of the Scriptures, is going to occur at Jesus' second coming. And Jesus' second coming is going to bring an end to what is known as a tribulation period, a seven-year tribulation period that is part of what the Bible speaks of at the end times. And at the end of this tribulation period, at Jesus' second coming, following the Jews being deceived by the Antichrist during that tribulation period, it appears that they are going to be believed that the Antichrist is uh, the Messiah by virtue of the fact that he is going to allow them to rebuild their temple and to reinstitute their sacrifices. And so they will rebuild their temple. They will reinstitute their sacrifices. But at the halfway mark of that seven-year tribulation, the three-and-a-half-year mark, one morning he wakes up, 
And the Antichrist walks straight into the temple and into the very Holy of Holies of the rebuilt temple. He sits down and he not only declares himself to be God, but then he demands to be worshipped as God. The entire world, but the most immediate population will be the Jews. And in that moment, the Jews will realize that they have been massively deceived by the Antichrist, and they will begin to flee for their lives. And even as Jesus encouraged them in the Olivet Discourse, he says, when you see this occur, run for your lives. Don't go to the rooftop. Pray it's not on the Sabbath day. Pray that you aren't with child. And they will begin to flee for their lives. And the Antichrist, demonically indwelt, will unleash a persecution against the Jews uh, like the world has never, ever seen in an attempt to utterly and completely uh, destroy them. And, but there will be Jews who will survive that great tribulation, which is the term that refers to the second three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period in general, they were, will survive that great uh, persecution. And, and all of this, this persecution being meted out against them, it will be relieved. It will cease at the moment of Jesus' second coming. And at that moment that he brings all of that to an end at his second coming, a, the physical salvation, they will experience a physical salvation, an end of the attempt to destroy them in that moment. And then in that very moment, they will recognize him as their Messiah all along, and they will put their faith in him for spiritual salvation uh, as well. And the Old Testament prophet Zechariah appears to have all of this in mind when he wrote prophetically of the Messiah, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, talking about the thousand-year reign of Christ that happens after the second coming. And then here, related to the Messiah, Zechariah says, And then they, speaking of the Jews, they will look on me, speaking of Jesus, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Imagine the emotion that they will feel when that light goes on, and they realize not only what they have missed, but what they participated in in the crucifixion of their own Messiah. Zechariah declares a little later in his book, Zechariah thirteen six, and one will say to him, that is to the Messiah, what are these wounds between your hand, your arms or in your hands? And he will declare those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. But you think about it as a, as a Christian, as a Gentile Christian, as most of us are. Think about how wonderful this fullness is going to occur, is going to be one day when it does occur. Imagine what it will be like when the Jews as a whole, not merely a small remnant as it is today, but when the Jews as a whole recognize Jesus 
as their Messiah, uh, even as the Gentiles do. Again, for those of you who have been to Israel, you might think I'm priming a pump for another trip to Israel. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. But I'm not. But for those of you who have been to Israel, you think nothing could be better than the trip that we had. And yet what Paul proposes here is the one thing that could make it better. Imagine going to Israel and imagine what it would be like to then tour Israel in, in which every single Jew is as excited about Jesus as we are. And then to have them join what has been largely a Gentile celebration of Jesus in the land, and now to make it universal among both the Jews and the Gentiles. And in that day, that's exactly what things are going to be like. And I think one of the most exciting spiritual relationships any Christian can ever have, or one of the most exciting and engaging uh, conversations anybody can ever have is to talk with a Messianic Jew, to talk with a, Christ, a, a Jewish Christian. Usually they've paid quite a price in, in order to embrace Jesus as their Messiah. But the excitement that they have for Him, the excitement for the Word of God, the torrent of living water that flows out of their innermost being, and now we get to engage in it, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there as we run into Jewish Christians. And in that day, it will mark every Jew. Amazing. And, and in verse 15, Paul, in this same vein, he describes this spiritual awakening as what will be their acceptance, uh, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead. In other words, spiritually speaking, I mean, one day when the Jews recognize Jesus as their Messiah and they accept Him, their restoration is going to be like a resurrection. And it's going to be a spiritual resurrection that's going uh, to occur. They're going to rise up out of a spiritually dead condition and they're going to be received and accepted by God once again. I've never attended a resurrection I've got the product of a resurrection living inside of me and the person of the Holy Spirit, and you do as well. But I've never seen a person raised uh, from the dead. I'm sure it is a very, very exciting experience, even if the person rises from the dead to die again. But here is a greater resurrection that's going to occur among the Jewish people, a spiritual resurrection. Uh, to which there will be no end uh, in, uh, in them. And the excitement of that possibility among us here today is Christians. The excitement of realizing that day is coming in church history. This resurrection is going to occur among uh, the Jewish people. Now, in verses 25 through 27, Paul declares that a day is coming when all of Israel is going to be saved. And again, when he talks about Israel, he's not talking about a landmass in the Middle East. He's not talking about boundaries or soil. He's talking about people. Remember that uh, Jacob, one of the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of the Old Testament, Jacob was the father of the 12 sons who became the, the, the 12 tribes of, of Israel. 
And so Jacob, when he talks about Israel here, remember, well, when Jacob, Jacob wrestled with the Lord and he was renamed, Jacob means heel catcher or con man or someone who will trip you up if you don't look out. And God says, no longer is your name Jacob. Your name is now Israel, which means governed by God or ruled by, by God. And Israel was born, the Jewish people, born out of the loins of, of Jacob. He's talking about the Jewish people a, a, as a whole. And he declares in verse 26 that all Israel will be saved. And when Paul says that, there's no way, I mean, he is not saying that, uh, uh, that all Israel or all Jews are going to be saved independent of Jesus or independent of trusting in him for that salvation. Uh, you remember Jesus himself declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And it was a, not a Gentile audience he spoke it to, but a, Jew, Jew, a Jewish audience, his, his own disciples. And so when he talks about all Israel here, he refers to those Jews who will witness Jesus' second coming. And apparently, the overwhelming majority of Jews that survive that tribulation period and they see him at his second coming, they will immediately recognize him as Messiah and they will put their uh, trust in him. Ezekiel does let us know that there's some small number among the Jews who will refuse to give up their uh, ungodliness. They'll be judged as a result of it, and, uh, and they, but they will now become the, uh, the unbelieving small remnant among the larger uh, majority and overwhelming majority of the Jewish people being saved. And the big point that Paul is making in all of this, some of you are saying, please, what is the big point? The big point is this. And what Paul is, is saying in all of this language is that God's remaining promises to them that he did not fulfill in his first coming, he is going to fulfill every single one of them at his second coming or during the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ that follows his second coming or on uh, into ultimately the new heavens and the new earth. Paul is saying God is not through with the Jews. He did not come to a point and say, I've made all of these promises to the Jewish people. Ah, but now I've got the church made up of Jews and Gentiles. The Jews are old news. I'll forget about all the promises I made to them. God, his, the, the callings and, uh, and giftings of God are without repentance, or so they're irrevocable, Paul says. God says, no, I don't make promises and change my mind. I will keep every promise of the Old Testament that I have made to the Jews. Now, notice that Paul gives us insights into how and, and when all of this is going to happen in the latter part of, of verse 26 and then into verse 27. And it, when it, there he quotes Isaiah chapter 59, verse 20. And he declares, all of this is going to occur when a Redeemer will come out of Zion, out of Jerusalem, he declares there in verse 20. And this is precisely what Jesus will do at his second coming. At his second coming, uh, Jesus will alight on the Mount of Olives to the east of the city of Jerusalem. 
The Mount of Olives will split in half, going north and south. He will then enter the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem. He will establish then Jerusalem as the headquarters of his reign during the kingdom age for that thousand years. And he will come in and out. He will come out not of Bethlehem. That was his first coming. He will now come out of Jerusalem because in his first coming, he came as a babe. In his second coming, he comes as a conquering king. In other words, all of this is going to happen when Messiah comes in that way as Jesus uh, will in his, uh, in his second, second coming. And upon their recognition of him uh, as their Messiah and putting their trust in him for salvation, uh, there as Paul declares in quoting Isaiah, uh, he will, Jesus will take away their sin based upon the terms of the new covenant. Now notice in verse 25 that all of this dealing with the Jews by God will unfold also when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Uh, you notice, he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mercy, uh, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And the fullness of the Gentiles refers to the time when the full number of Gentiles, non-Jews, that God knows is going to be saved uh, prior to the rapture of the church ends up getting saved. And when that final Gentile is saved, then the church will be raptured and then the tribulation period uh, will start, that seven-year period that, that, that then, as I said, ends with Jesus' second coming and the Jewish recognition of Jesus as Messiah and as Savior. No longer now that them being a remnant among the Jews, but it will mark the Jews as a whole. Many, many Jews and Gentiles will be saved during the tribulation period. This is talking about uh, that final Gentile that God knows is going to be saved. Might be Joe Bacicalupi in Oakdale. If you know him, please give him a tract and witness to him today. But someday, in this whole wide world, where you've got somebody street witnessing in Ecuador or in Russia, or a, a, some kind of a crusade, a harvest crusade, or in a church service like this all around the world where people are given the opportunity to put their faith in Christ. Somewhere on the face of this planet, that final Gentile will put their faith in Christ that it will represent the fullness for that particular uh, 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 concern of God, and then the rapture of the church will occur. It certainly gives great excitement to any street witnessing you do, or witnessing to a family member, or watching a crusade. Because one day, someone is going to be rep uh, get saved, some Gentile, and represent the fullness of it, and then, then we will be removed. It's very, very important to remember that the seven-year tribulation period, during that period, God is not dealing with the church. He's dealing uh, with the Jews. 
And that, sometimes people get confused. They read through chapter 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation, and they see the elect referred to. The elect refers to three different groups in the Bible. And when it talks about the elect in the great tribulation, it's talking supremely about the Jews. It can talk about Gentiles that are getting saved as well. But when you're in that tribulation period, you're on Jewish ground. In the Old Testament, the, in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, that tribulation period is known as the time of Jacob's trouble. You remember in Daniel chapter 9, one of the most famous prophecies in the Old Testament in this regard, where uh, the angel of the Lord comes uh, from uh, God, takes a message, brings it to uh, Daniel. Allow me to read it to you. He says to Daniel, 77s are determined for your people and for your holy city, your people, Daniel, the Jews, for your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. He said there's seven sevens that are, are going to bring all of this uh, to f- uh, about in human history. And then he speaks to Daniel about 69 of those 77s. And he describes that block of time that is going to occur between the time that a decree is given in order for the Jerusalem and the wall of Jerusalem to be rebuilt following its devastation with the Babylonian conquest until the coming of Messiah the Prince. And, and in that 483 years and 170,880 days, something like that, from the time that the decree was given, Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. But that's only 69 of the 77s. There still is a seven-year block in which God says is necessary to bring all of this about among the Jewish people. And it is the tribulation period. You read the book of Revelation and people say, I don't understand it. And one of the reasons we don't understand it is because uh, a lack of familiarity with the, o- with the Old Testament. There are 404 verses in the uh, book of Revelation. 278 of them are direct quotes and references from the Old Testament. It is Jewish ground that we're on when we're talking about those, uh, that huge block of revelation that speaks of the tribulation period. And, and, and so the fullness of the Gentiles is going to be the thing that is the next step in all of this unfolding and then the rapture of the church. Now allow me to close by uh, looking at what Paul does here because he, he builds it on in all of this. One second while I make my way back to Romans. Lord, we pray for Joe Bacicolupi and we pray that he'd get saved today and we could all get out of here. But Paul also, and again, I point your attention to verse 13 where he says, For I speak to you Gentiles. And, and so he's been dealing with the Jews almost entirely in these three chapters now. And now at the tail end of it, he says, I want, to pull, I want to pull you Gentile Christians aside because I've got some very important things to tell you about what is supposed to be your attitude toward uh, the Jewish people. 
and, and specifically toward unbelieving Jews related to Jesus as, as we await all of these uh, future events. And uh, you notice in verses 13 and 14, he tells us that we're to possess a concern for the salvation of the Jewish people. And this, the concern that we're to have for the Jewish people, the desire that they would be saved, is to be manifested supremely in provoking them to jealousy. And so living, not 50% of the Christian life that we see in the Scriptures, not 70% of the Christian life that we see in the Scriptures, but 100% of the Christian life that we see in the Scriptures in order that it might produce in them a longing for the source of whoever has produced this for us uh, within our lives and have a, 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 a jealousy, a holy uh, jealousy and, and desire for salvation within their lives. He says second uh, to us that we are to remember that there's a coming acceptance for them, that God is not through with the Jewish people, but He has a future for them, a hard future uh, but at the other, uh, on the far end of it, a very, very uh, glorious future. In verses 16 to, to 21, he tells us that we're to walk with humility uh, toward unbelieving Jews. We know how to do that with believing Jews, but with unbelieving Jews. And even with unbelieving Jews, we are to interact with them with a humility, with a deep sense of indebtedness and with gratitude for them, not with an attitude of pride and, and certainly no looking down on them or any kind of anti-Semitism. In verses 16 through 18, Paul tells us that we are not to boast as if we are not deeply indebted to the Jewish people spiritually. And Paul likens us to, as Gentile Christians, to being wild olive branches that have been grafted into the root and the fatness of an olive tree. And the olive tree speaks of the historic spiritual Israel, those of the physical and the spiritual stock of Abraham. And he says, we as Gentile Christians... We're the wild olive branches. We had no covenant with God. We had no relationship with God. We had no access uh, to God. And then the branches that were broken off, they re represent the unbelieving Jews concerning Jesus as Messiah. But he talks about being grafted into these roots. And the roots represent the patriarchs, Jewish patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and he's specifically thinking about Abraham through whom God brought the entire nation into existence. And you notice when he talks here about Jew and Gentile, he does not talk about Christianity or Jewish Christians as saying, now we become a second tree. That you had the Jewish thing going on over here, and they're the olive tree over here, and God has now established something very different in the church. It has no roots in that, no concern for that, no relationship with that. This is something different entirely. There aren't two trees. What we are is we've been grafted into a single tree and a very rich spiritual heritage that was initially given uh, to uh, the Jews. And, and Israel is not spiritually indebted to us. We are indebted to them.
And so no boasting or looking condescendingly down uh, upon even unbelieving uh, Jews uh, with a realization we don't support the root, the root, the root supports us. Our Savior is Jewish. God decided to bring him into the world through a Jewish bloodline. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. The Old Testament scriptures that we love as Christians and give us a depth and an understanding of salvation and forgiveness and everything that we would not otherwise have. All of it, the blessings that God has brought into the world through the Jewish people. And so he tells us in verses 19 to 21 that we're not to have, be haughty in our attitude toward the Jews, but fear. And Paul is saying that we shouldn't look down upon even unbelieving Jews simply because God is being gracious to us as Gentiles in saving us, in grafting us into that rich uh, Jewish heritage. Our salvation is 100% grace and 100% free. And anybody that looks down on another person spiritually has lost sight of the fact that we are what we are solely by the grace of God. And that God has done what He has done, not in order for us to boast or to look down on uh, other people, but that we might be, as the old saying goes, uh, one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread, only spiritually uh, speaking. You notice he says further in speaking to us of our attitude in verses 22 to 24. He said, if they turn from their unbelief, God will eagerly graft them back in, uh, uh, again. And then fifth in verse 28, uh, he declares that though they are enemies of the gospel, they are still beloved by God for the sake of of the fathers. In other words, they are beloved by God because God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, and God is going to keep those promises that He has made to them. And there's a future work that He's going to do through the Jewish people. And I think all, most of us are very familiar of the fact that in general, it, it, the, the, the Jews were the greatest opposers of Jesus in his public ministry, especially religious, religious Jews. And the Apostle Paul and his three uh, missionary journeys, it was always the Jews that, uh, that sent him scattering from one city to the next, or persecution, putting his very life in danger, putting out contracts for uh, his, his, his very death. And so the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of Paul, the ministry of the gospel, uh, I mean, it was opposed by the Jews more than any other group. And their opposition to the idea of Jesus as their Messiah is as strong today. And as a result of it, they can be very, very frustrating in this regard. But we are to always remember that they are beloved by God still for the sake of the fathers. And some of them can be very stubborn. They can be very, very uh, difficult. And I'm being diplomatic in my language. But we are never to count them as an enemy, even if they would count us as an enemy. 
but to realize again they're deeply loved by God who desires to show the same grace to them that He has shown to us. Christians should be the greatest friends of the Jewish people that they have in the entire world. And sadly, it hasn't been so. It's almost as if these verses do not exist in the Bible in terms of church history, in terms of God's instruction to the Gentile church, in terms of how we're to view the Jewish people. Church history has been terrible. Some of the worst atrocities that have been meted out against uh, the Jews historically have been done by those, I don't say that they are Christians, but they identified as Christians. So the importance of what we're looking at, and then our own heart, how we view the Jewish people. I think it's interesting that in the last 40 years or so, it's taken a long time to go to Israel and to see that there's some nuanced thinking in terms of Christians. And there's the recognition. They call Christians like you and I, uh, some people do, they call us Bible Christians. That's a different variety of Christians. That's somebody who's serious about the Lord, the Word of God, serious about God, loves God. That's, and they recognize that that group of Christians are the greatest friends that they have in the world. And the Jews have very few friends in the world. And it's taken a long time for a lot of Christians going to Israel, but Christians all around the world in contact with the Jews, taking seriously what Paul says in the last part of Romans chapter 11, which is virtually unread and completely obscure to the average Christian, that has built that bridge and begun to make that kind of an impact among uh, the Jewish people. He says further and finally, in verses 29 to 30, that we are to know that God's promises to them are irrevocable. He is going to keep every promise He's made to them, and, and uh, His plan is currently unfolding. And in the same way He overrule, has overruled their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah to then bring salvation to the Gentiles in the way that, uh, that, that He has, and, and, and God will have mercy on them the same degree as He's had on us when they return. And the entire section is this very needed warning to Gentile Christians against conceit, and against pride in terms of viewing unbelieving Jews related to the most important person in our life, and that is Jesus Himself. Paul says this is to be our attitude, and this is how we are to see them. And it's very, very important instruction. Super important. This is the kind of... Who's going to teach on this passage unless you're going straight through a book? So we come to it. And what it does is it's passages like this and things like this that round us out as Christians. And we can look at something like this, and for the average one of us in this room, we look at a passage like this or a sermon like this, and we realize, we realize immediately, this, this does not speak to the absolute core of my Christian life my relationship with God, you know, supremely, or, uh, you, you know, and, 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 and where, how I interact with the body of Christ and these kind of things. But it's in the Bible nonetheless. 
So not everything in the Bible speaks to the absolute core of who we are as Christians and what we're to be, but they're still important. They round us out. You can take a guy, you can take a model, whether it's a male or a female, and bring them down the catwalk. I, I guess, I don't know, is it a catwalk for guys? I don't know. So I'm very out of touch with the fashion world. This is just coming to my mind at the moment. But they come down, and here he can be in this fabulous suit. I mean, tight at the ankles and the right shoes, and there we used to call them floods. It's all in now. And so they, they got, and, and everything, and everything is just absolutely perfect. And then they've got a dish towel in their pocket. It, it takes everything being right for the full impact. And so God deals with these nuances. He deals with these smaller things within our lives as Christians so that when we present ourselves to re represent God, every single piece is right for His, His glory. And so He speaks to us about these things. If you're, you're going to get your MBA in business, or you're going to go to medical school, or you're going to uh, be an economist, or you're going, to be, uh, you're going to major in engineering, and you go and you get your education, and all that education just goes straight into a core of something. And then what do they so often do? Either as you're preparing for college, or once you get into college, they're going to force you to take some liberal arts, It won't make a difference at the core in terms of your success as an engineer, but it rounds you out as a person so that you're not one-dimensional, so that you can be fully what you're supposed to be. And passages like this do the same thing for us as Christians as well. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, Wow, what a passage you came to. If this is your first time that you've ever come to church, I'm not going to apologize But this is deep water that you found yourself in today. But it is a part of the Bible, and it certainly doesn't keep you from getting saved today. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to make this Jesus your Savior, and for you to be forgiven of your sins and to have the confidence of one day going into heaven and then more than any of it entering into a relationship, a personal relationship with God and in that relationship all of the core emptiness and loneliness and sense of what is life and what is the meaning of life, all of it disappears and all of it goes. And all of it is waiting for you because you've been created for a relationship with God. And if you'd like to do that this morning, they'd love to pray with you and to pray for you. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for your concern that not just a portion of the whole or not just the core of our lives or not just... 50 or 70% of our life would reflect you and possess your perspective, Lord, as we represent you in this world. But you deal with the nuances. You deal with the fine-tuning, and we're so glad for that. And we thank you for the knowledge that we will walk away from this room with as Christians, and that is that you're not finished with the Jews. And then even more important than that, 
how it is that we're to see them and to interact with them, Lord, in a way that is effective and fruitful toward their salvation. Thank you for this instruction, Lord, and we pray that in every interaction, in every decision that we make, every interaction with Jewish people, that this would come to the forefront and mark our relationship with them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.